The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, September 14th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. PR pitches. Every day I get PR pitches. I could make fun of them every day. But you know what? Today, a couple of gems came through. So I wanted to read you this headline, this PR pitch. It was titled, subject line, and, and for context, you need to know that Mr. Met is the encephalitic mascot of the New York Mets. You know the guy, giant head, is a baseball, gave the guy the finger, though not the middle finger, he's four-fingered earlier this year. Beloved, goofy, whimsical mascot. Now that you know that, here's the subject line. Mr. Met takes the hashtag 60-second challenge to end youth suicide. Wow, did not expect it to end there. And in fact, reading it backwards highlights just how insane this is. To end youth suicide, the 60-second challenge, which we'll find out what it is, is undertaken by Mr. Met. Let me tell you what the 60-second challenge is. Celebrities and athletes around the globe are taking the 60-second challenge, doing a set of push-ups on camera and posting their video to social media. And that will end youth suicide. I don't know. I always thought it might be a comprehensive system of mental health, a deeper understanding to uh, psychoses, destigmatization of mental illness on a societal level. No, it's doing a minute worth of push-ups, especially if you're a mascot. You know what? Today I went to the gym. I did three sets of squats, a few dozen preacher curls, a series of burpees. Turns out I just cured lupus, eczema, and Jakob Kreutzfeld disease. Man, if I had time for leg lifts, I could have knocked off cirrhosis of the liver. And by the way, the Mets as a team are doing as little as they can to stave off depression in their fans. Brings me to the second PR pitch. Mike, wanted to check back with you about an expert who could weigh in on how to check if your personal information was compromised in Equifax's recent cybersecurity incident. Well, I, I was hooked. I was intrigued. I want to do some coverage of this. So uh, who is this expert and what is this uh, perhaps foundation or institution that the expert is affiliated with? Here we go. Experts at Super Monkey can break down a step-by-step guide for... Ch- yeah, thanks. Thanks, Super Monkey. Nothing says peace of mind for your personal information and guarding against identity theft like Super Monkey. Not since I used their parent site, Caffeinated Meth Head, to perform a complete forensic evaluation of my net worth did I feel more confident in a financially affiliated website. Caffeinated Meth Head, they're methodical. And by the way, If you or your family members face the most trying time of life, you could depend on the experience and sensitivity of Hospice Chimp. Hospice Chimp. The staff, they're all actual chimps, but they wear nurse uniforms. With Hospice Chimp, you know that your care is our top priority. And flinging our own feces is but a distant second. With Hospice Chimp. (coughs) On the show today, no Hospice Chimp. But I will spiel about sticking to sports, Jamel Hill not doing so, and the White House also not doing so. But first, has, has any of the stuff I said made you happy? Would you like to get happier? Well, do I have the prescription for you? As Diane Fossey was with the gorillas, as Audubon was with the birds, so too is Gretchen Rubin on just the concept of happiness. She chronicles it, she brings it to you, and she's here now. 
lot of people claim that they can help you or claim they know what can help you, but how do we know they're right? Here is one simple test I use. Whenever I see my next guest, Gretchen Rubin, I get happier. And she is a (laughs) happiness expert. And her podcast is called Happier. So it all seems to be working. This is credibility. And that's why my mind was open to her new work, The Four Tendencies, in which she lays out four major personality types and tells you how to deal with those types and what type you are and how that affects your life and how the people around you fall into these categories. Hello, Gretchen. How are you? I'm very happy to be talking to you. (laughs) So we have discussed this before because... Because The Four Tendencies, even though it got its own book, it was like uh, the breakout character from your last yeah, book. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. a spinoff. Right, because mm. I wrote in Better Than Before, I wrote about the 21 strategies that you can use to make or break your habits. And this Four Tendencies framework was just one strategy among 21. But then once Better Than Before came out, I was just deluged with people saying, you've got to talk more about how to use the four tendencies and how to understand them and asking me really nuanced, sophisticated, mm-hmm. kind of advanced questions about how to how, how to apply them. So I thought, I really need to sit down and think this through. Yeah, lots of people, and you're not a self-help guru, you're a journalist, but you like to explore these questions of, you know, uh, self-help and what makes us happier and what's more efficient, what are more efficient ways to do things. Is the proof of the pudding in the taste that once you put those out there, so many people responded to them, you knew you were onto something? It's definitely just something that I saw in the world. Yes. It, I saw these patterns. I couldn't explain them. There were just these things where people would say practically the same thing as if it was being beamed into their head by the CIA. I'm like, why are these people saying this thing? These other people share this same struggle. And I think my framework makes sense of it. And I think why people find it helpful is that it actually tells you what to do. It's like when you know what your tendency is, if you're an upholder, a questioner, a bludger, a rebel, or you know what somebody else is, it tells you like, therefore, try this. And usually when people try that, it works. Yes. So you mentioned the four tendencies, which can, if you want a mnemonic device, it spells rock, R-O-Q-U, rebel, obliger, questioner, upholder. Those are four tendencies. Before we got there, before we get there to the tendencies, it all starts from, I think, the fundamental nature of a person are they, how do they deal with outer expectations and inner expectations? So you have found that that question is uh, real and defines people more than, you know, they might think? Exactly. It's this idea of expectation. So how do you respond to an, an inner expectation? Like you want to keep a New Year's resolution. You want to get back into practicing guitar. How do you respond to an outer expectation? Something like a work deadline or a request from a friend. It turns out that some people meet these outer expectations, some people resist them, and and how you respond in different combinations is what makes you an upholder, a questioner, an obliger, or a rebel. Right. So let's think of inner expectations and outer expectations both having the binary choice. I do well with them, I don't do well with them. And then you will spin off four different categories, and these are the categories. Right. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. So they meet the work deadline, they keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. They resist anything arbitrary, inefficient, irrational. So they make everything an inner expectation. If it meets their standard and they're like, yeah, this makes sense, they do it. If it fails their standard, they resist. So it's all inner. Then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. This is like a friend of mine who said, I don't understand it. When I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? It's like when she had a team and a coach. 
no problem when she's just trying to go running on her own. It's a struggle. And then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectation, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. If you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. Typically, they don't want to tell themselves what to do. Like they wouldn't make a New Year's resolution. They wouldn't sign up for a class that meets at 10 o'clock on Saturdays because they don't want to bind themselves. It seems there's no better or worse, but I'll make a couple generalizations. (laughs) It seems like upholders, they might be the most evolved. They might be the ones who, and I'm not an upholder, but they might be the ones who are have the easiest way making their way in the world. They're people who are going to do the job because they want to do the job and because you want to do the job. Their boss will love them And they'll love themselves for satisfying the uh, requirements of the boss. Well, you're right that in in a lot of ways, upholders, I think, have an an easier time of it. But the fact is, it all depends. It depends on you and it depends on your situation. In some situations, you're much better off being a questioner who's like, everybody's telling me to do all this stuff. It doesn't make any sense. I'm not going to do it. It depends what the expectation is. Or a rebel who's like, this is insane. Like, I don't care about convention. I'm going to do things my own way. So it, it really depends on whether you've figured out how to work with your tendency to get the strengths of it and offset the weaknesses and limitations, because each of the tendencies have its strengths and weaknesses, and then also what circumstances you're in because right. you know one boss might give a bonus to a questioner who's asking a lot of questions and is driving to efficiency another boss might say well you're not being a team player and you're not respecting my authority and so i'm going to fire you right obligers for certain roles obligers make good soldiers obligers probably make good workers i mean you want someone who you set a deadline they'll meet it yeah obl- obligers are the rock of the world they're the biggest tendency for both men and women that's the one that the most people belong to and because we because a lot of things, but I think society wants most of its people to be obligers. Well, wants most of the, wants the foundation and building block of a society, people who will say sure and do the job. <laughs> well, I think these are genetically determined. I think people come into the world this way. So whether evolutionarily, like that's why this has evolved, that's it would be an interesting question to ponder. Right. Um, well, maybe. But that, think of it. Obligers yeah. can also be amazing and visionary leaders because you know they feel like I have to do this for my people, or I you know I owe it to the world to do this. So it's not like they're always followers because they can be leaders. You know, and sometimes people think obligers are all very agreeable, which they're not. A textbook obliger, if you have read his amazing memoir, Open, by Andre Agassi. Andre Agassi is a textbook obliger. I don't think he's the model that people often have in their mind right. of what an obliger looks like. Because he had the long hair, because he branded himself yes. the rebel. But when you do read the book, he just had this crazy Iranian dad who set up a, t- a tennis ball machine and shot it at him, and he did whatever his dad wanted to do. And then he winds up being like, 35 and it's like, wow, I never even thought if I wanted any of yes, this. Right, exactly, yeah. which is very obliger. But he's an interesting example. Like you you bring up his like his hair and his clothes. So one thing that obligers sometimes do is have obliger rebellion, which is when they meet, meet, <laughs> meet, meet expectations, and then suddenly they snap and they're like, This I won't do. I'm putting my foot down. And this is when expectations are too high, or when they feel neglected or taken advantage of or exploited or not listened to, or or expectations are just insupportable. So they, this obliger rebellion is a way to get out of it. And sometimes it's symbolic. And what's interesting is Andre Agassi did do a lot of kind of symbolic rebellion, like with the way that he dressed and the way he wore his hair, with his appearance. Yeah. But then sometimes obliger rebellion is like people quitting their job or getting a divorce or ending a friendship that has lasted 20 years because they're like, you know what? 
I've had it. And sometimes the guys we or women we might think of as one thing from their outer appearance, if you know a little bit about their motivation, aren't. Like, I'm thinking of Bill Belichick, the Patriots coach. Okay. 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 So this so, is something that means literally nothing to me. So yeah. tell me so why. He's an interesting, he's a seeming contradiction in that he is the most, uh, he's the best coach in the NFL. Most people hate him. He's, <laughs> he's so out of the box and does not care about your opinion and will go against so many tendencies to speak of tendencies about here's what you're supposed to do on fourth down he'll do the opposite not ah. just because people tell him to do the opposite it seems that he is he's questioned everything but ah. at the same time he grew up um his dad was the coach of navy he totally believes in discipline and order never rebelling so he seems to have a different contrast of all these things but i think he's as big a questioner as they come and the other, and the thing is, I'm as big a questioner yes, as they come, and we're also totally opposite. He and I are totally opposite, except maybe in the process that gets us there. Well, and that brings up an interesting point because we could line up fifty questioners, and they would be completely different from each other depending on how ambitious they were, how considerate of other people's feelings they were, how intellectual they were, how curious they were, how extroverted or introverted they were, how neurotic they were, how controlling they were. All the tendencies tell you is how do you respond to an expectation, and it might be that you and this coach. You are different in many, many ways. But if somebody says, do this, you're like, why should why? I? The, if the first if, question is if why. If the first question is, why should I? That is the hallmark of a questioner, no matter what else. It could be that you two share that, even though you have many qualities that are very different from each other. In partnerships, uh, be it a romantic or work partnership, which groups work well together? There's so many things that make people pair up well. So this is just one of yes. many aspects. So you have to say, like, it's not going to explain everything. But one very, very striking pattern is if you see a rebel... And they're partnered up, either in romance or at work, like you've got a founding team or something like that. Almost always it's with an obliger. A rebel and an obliger, that's a very stable pattern. Not to say that it, you never see the other other combinations, yeah. but that is by far. If you're a rebel or you're looking at a rebel, they're almost If you're successful. Even if not. Yeah. I mean, that's just who rebels tend to partner up with, is with obligers. So I want to ask you about my relationship. I'm a questioner, yes. big dyed-in-the-wool questioner, and my girlfriend is a huge obliger, uh -huh. like the quintessential worker and an athlete in school, but now finds it hard to yes. you know motivate there you to go. do her stuff. Okay. Knowing what I know, I've tried to tell her about this, and she's somewhat interested, but I have used, I think, some insights that I got Ooh, yes, uh, in our life. Now, tell me, I'll give you the situation, and I think I addressed my needs as a questioner. So I would always be late. First of all, I don't think of it as a moral failing. I think of it as, uh, well, I don't think of it. Wait, I, can I interrupt you for yeah. one question and ask an important question? Yeah. Do you do things like miss flights? I have missed a flight or From two. being late? Yeah. But my philosophy on that, okay. and it's a thought out philosophy, is okay. that they tell you to get the airport three hours early, okay. and then you're wasting three hours of your time okay. so often. Okay. I ask because some people truly have no time sense. Yeah. You clearly have time sense. You're just gaming this to be more efficient. So That's you, right. Yes, right. What I yeah. call more efficient. Yes. Now she- yeah. Which is a deep value of questioners is efficiency. So yeah. You're oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. So, and customization. I'm going to do it my way. Yes. Yes. To they optimize tell me, this. They tell me three hours yes. early because what do they That's have ridiculous. to lose? But I have a TSA. Yeah, and I, I know a, how to do yeah, it. Right. Exactly. So this is questioner like- 
Capital so I'm, Q. Right. So I'm late. I'm often late for, you know, a couple minutes late for a dinner appointment. And I think it's no big deal. But I do take other people's opinions into account. And I know she hates this. And that's the number one reason why I wanted to address it. She injects a moral component to it. You're not valuing my time. I say there is no moral component to it. But rather than just have this never ending <laughs> debate, which isn't a debate because I always lose because yeah. I'm the late one and I'll never convince her it's not so bad to be late. I analyzed, all right, what's the best way for me to get somewhere on time. And so I went back and I said, well, what are things that motivate me? What would really get me to change? And I'm motivated by money. I'm more motivated by not losing money. I wouldn't call myself cheap, but I'd hate to lose money. But wait, do you want to get there on time? What I want to do is is make her happy. Like, I don't, no, personally, I don't want wait, to. Wait, what are you trying to do in this situation? Are you trying to get yourself to get there on time? Yes, I'm trying to whenever I have uh, a dinner date okay. or anything where I have to meet my girlfriend, I want her to be happy okay. and I want to be there one to five minutes early. Okay. Because then okay. she sees it as okay. I'm respect. valuing her time and respect yeah. and okay. and the, doing the thing that gotcha. I should do. Gotcha. Okay. So I went back and I did a self-analysis and I realized the thing that motivates me is money. We set up a system whereby if I'm late, I give her $100 if I'm Ooh, late at all. High stakes. That's right. no five bucks. If I'm on time, I get 10 bucks. I was going to ask for 20, but I asked for 10 bucks and a beverage. So right now, I'm at negative 20. Uh, I was late like the second time we did this, but then I've I nailed you know seven in a row. And the thing is, even if I wind up losing 20 bucks or whatever, she's so much happier with this whole system. Uh-huh. If I'm one or two minutes late, instead of her being extremely upset, she's getting a hundred bucks. <laughs> like, so she's really happy. She's a win-win. It's pretty much a win-win for her. Yeah. It lights a fire under me. Yeah. I think I'm going to wind up a little bit ahead. Uh, <laughs> So to me, to me, the whole framework of be on time for all these reasons didn't make sense. Right. But I think I created a new framework of yeah. be on time to get 10 bucks and not lose 100. And that really is working for me. And it's also working for her. So I don't know if that's four tendencies, but it's a system that's really working. No, well, it sounds like what you did is you created a system where it was efficient and made sense for you to be on time for a reason other than something that you thought was not had no value, which is this idea that somehow it was showing respect. You're right. like, it's not showing respect. Right. So and, therefore, and, it's not a good measure of respect. And I know that yeah. her feelings really do have a value. Yeah. And maybe I'm a terrible person that that wasn't like value enough. She right. would say, well, what about my feelings? I'm like, yes, but you you have these feelings about things that you can't say you shouldn't have these feelings, but right. you're imparting things that shouldn't be there. Right. But so, so now- forget throw all that out and now it's about a hundred bucks or ten bucks in a beverage. No, I think that's a great idea because you've just found your own system of why it makes sense for you. She was sort of ho- holding up a value system when you're like, well, I just don't buy into your value system. But we don't have to argue about that because I'm just going to sneak off and come up with this other value system that's going to even be kind of funny and, and a little bit silly in a game. I take it serious, but okay. No, no but, but, but I mean, it's also sort of like lighthearted and yes. like, oh man, you just made a hundred bucks. You know yeah, what I mean? It, yeah, it kind yeah. of takes it away from this, what does this mean about a relationship to right. kind of like, sucker, you know, <laughs> you're buying dinner tonight or whatever. So and I think what, what a about smart it, solution. What about it appear, appealed to her as an obliger? Just that I was actually on time, that's it, whatever yeah, it took. <laughs> yeah, and you were showing, like she was saying like this, she, you know, it's because like, sometimes an obliger wouldn't even speak up on something like that. They would just feel put upon and resentful and then like the 10th time you're late there's a giant explosion and then you're like what why why (laughs) what i don't understand like what is the big deal i'm 10 minutes late does it you know like that so it's good that she sort of articulated that this was something that was was bothering her um so but I, i think when people do start saying things like that you're wise to take them into account even if you want to debate the the underlying 
kind of point. Yes. The fact is she has the feelings that she feels and you can't really, you know, have a debate society meeting in which you eloquently convince somebody that their heartfelt feelings are just... Uh, not based in anything. And so, okay, okay, we could just get rid of that. There was that time that worked. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. I have, I, yeah. I, gave my, I gave a flow chart, chart yes. and so she realized her feelings were invalid. <laughs> Happier is the podcast. The Four Tendencies is the book. And Gretchen Rubin has been my guest. Thank you, Gretchen. Thank you. And now the spiel. Stick to sports. It is the cry of the NASCAR loving, the ump is blind. Who do I start my flex spot in a PPR league masses? It's not that the average sports fan or Joe six-pack sports fan doesn't enjoy debate or discourse. I mean, why did Socrates ever pose the philosophical question, is Joe Flacco an elite quarterback, if not for an inherent love of debate in the sports community? It's just that this sort of fan wants sports to be a refuge. Unfortunately, that time has passed. It's as much a relic as when the guys in the press corps used to look the other way as Babe Ruth ran buck naked, chasing a couple of showgirls on the train to Baltimore. That guy was elite, by the way. Keeping politics out of sports is pretty hard these days, especially when the spokesperson for America's top politician weighs in on if a sportscaster should be fired for criticizing her boss. I just wanted to read a comment from a influential African-American sportscaster from ESPN yesterday who said Donald Trump is a white supremacist who has largely surrounded himself with other white supremacists as rise to direct result of white supremacy, period. He's unqualified and fit to be president. Why do you think, do you have a reaction to that? Is the president aware of that comment? And I'm not sure you- if he's aware, but I think that's one of the more outrageous comments that anyone could make, uh, and certainly something that I think is a fireable offense yeah. by ESPN. Now, I just want to point out that Sarah Huckabee Sanders does come on much stronger with personnel decisions in which she actually has a say than on ones she doesn't. Here she was talking about Anthony Scaramucci. Look, I think Anthony put out a a statement here just moments ago and uh, stated that, you know, this is a guy who sometimes uses colorful and uh, in uh, many circles, probably not appropriate language. And uh, he's very passionate about the president, the president's agenda. And I think he may have let that get the best of him in that conversation. And then just a couple days ago, she downplayed other provocative statements, but these came from a speaker who she used to work with for six months. She was asked about Steve Bannon predicting a war within the Republican Party. I think that uh, Steve always likes to speak in kind of uh, the most extreme measures. I'm not sure that I agree with that. Not sure I agree with that, as opposed to fire Jamel Hill. Jamel Hill did tweet that Donald Trump was, quote, a white supremacist who has largely surrounded himself with other white supremacists. And she noted on Twitter, it's the height of white privilege to be able to ignore his white supremacy because it's of no threat to you. Well, it's a threat to me. Hill was chastised, but not fired, which led to many ESPN critics crying foul because Kurt Schilling, former Red Sox pitcher and ESPN commentator, was fired for conservative tweets. Why not fire the liberal for liberal tweets? I got to tell you, the Schilling Hill is not the hill to die on. In fact, if I were conservative, I wouldn't want to associate his tweets with my cause in any way. 
Schilling was first tossed off ESPN's premier baseball show. He was hired to provide commentary about, you know, the grip of a four-seam fastball. But then he went on a radio show and said Hillary Clinton should be buried under a jail. He said that the winner of the Democratic debates was ISIS. And finally, he tweeted an anti-trans meme that was, you know, pure slur. And that's just a small rundown of some of the things that Kurt Schilling did to get his bosses upset with him. Later on, this uh, latter-day William F. Buckley landed on Breitbart, and lately he's been using his perch to say that Baltimore Oriole outfielder Adam Jones lied about being called the N-word at Fenway Park, even though Kurt Schilling wasn't there and the Red Sox themselves apologized and acknowledged the problem. This is why it's dumb for anyone to raise the bloody flag or sock in Schilling's defense. Also, Hill was hired to give her opinion, and this wasn't the best thought-out argument, People believe it. It's fine. I kind of don't care to hear my sports commentator weighing in to that degree, but I'm not offended. And she was plucked as a columnist from the Orlando Sentinel, given a platform on ESPN.com to give her opinions, given a show to give her opinions. And now she's been hired to go on ESPN's flagship sports center to mix things up, to be herself, to give opinions. It's very different from Kurt Schilling. And I would also say that what she said about Donald Trump being a racist is much more within the Overton window than what Kurt Schilling memed his way into. Although advanced stats show the Overton window is shrinking, it used to be above the batter's knees and below the shoulders, and now it's even tighter than that. Anyway, there is one insight I could bring to this, something new, and it's that a lot of the consternation came from the charge and the words that Donald Trump was a white supremacist. And here's a little bit of what I think is going on. She might be saying flat out, he's a white supremacist. He's a Klansman. She did say he was a bigot. I don't think that's exactly what she's saying. White supremacist does mean guy in the Ku Klux Klan. But also, as I'm sure you know, in academic discourse, which has seeped a bit into the general discourse, talking about white supremacy isn't just talking about Klansmen or people who burn crosses. It's talking about the system that keeps in place the societal hierarchy of white people on top in America. I have always wondered why they chose that phrasing. If I was a critical race theorist in the 60s or 70s, I might say, yes, that is actually an apt description of society as I see it. But of course, this other class of people does now hold the phrase. Maybe they didn't think it would seep so much into the general discourse. Anyway, we have the phrase white supremacist being used for two related but slightly different things. Now, I don't think, I don't know, I don't think Jamil Hill cared if someone thought she was saying he's a Klansman. But I have to tell you, and I've talked to conservatives about this, on air even, they were really riled up by this phrase. They're not steeped in critical race theory. They hear white supremacist. They're like, you called the president a Klansman. A month ago, I was hosting the show Left, Right, and Center. One of the guests was using the language I'm talking about, white supremacy. And the National Review editor, Rich Lowry, was just having none of it. You can you can disagree with the, the idea of cutting uh, marginal tax rates, but it has nothing to do with white supremacy. Sure, it you does. can. Uh, <laughs> what what is tax tax reform? Like the nineteen eighty six tax reform was a great white supremacist initiative. Uh, I mean, th- this no, is no, no, no. Okay, here is what's not absurd. Okay, the fact that uh, economics and race identity, all these gender, uh, you know, various things, have to deal with. The things that, you know, you think are just purely, you know, about fiduciary matters. All right. Here's the point. It's not about whether or not people are racist. 
It's not about whether or not they're white supremacists themselves or have that feeling in their heart. It's not about what we see as racism. You know, we see a lot of people in polos and khakis holding tiki torches. It's not about whether or not they're dressed as racist or behaving in a racist manner. It's about whether or not the end product of the policy that they are advocating serves to disadvantage and create a further divide between whites and other non-whites in this country. The point isn't about whether or not it's racist. The point is that if whether or not these particular agenda items serve to buttress the goals of white supremacy. So I do think here, the language, the words are an example of people talking past each other. But to be sure, there is a true desire to keep sports a refuge. I do think, though, for the most part, ESPN's critics don't necessarily want sports to be a refuge from political discourse. They want it to be a refuge from liberal political discourse. Clay Travis of Outkick the Coverage, a blog and a Fox Sports 1 radio show, is the leading voice calling out ESPN for being too political. Here was him on why calling Donald Trump a white supremacist is out of bounds. Now, I'm not an expert on Donald Trump's cabinet, but I know there's a black guy named Herman Cain in that cabinet, right? I don't think that he is racist. I know that Nikki Haley is also in that cabinet as a member of the UN. I don't think that she is racist. I don't think that when you really break it down, Elaine Cho Cho is racist. Herman Cain, Elaine Choa. I never thought I'd say it, but dude, stick to sports. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Dan Schrader has committed to delivering his first child the natural way with the service Rhinoceros Doula. Home birth. Horn that has mystical properties. Rhinoceros Doula. And when Mary Wilson, just producer, was going through a tough personal time, she used hamster therapist. Who better than a small rodent with a heartbeat of 275 times a minute to help you get to those deep, deep-seated personal issues? Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, uses the Alex Jones on a four-day bender meditation center. Say om! Om! I'm a man! I'm Warrior One! The gist. We're taking the awareness challenge. We're raising awareness about the pitfalls and destructiveness of awareness. We're dunking ourselves in pudding and shooting viral videos of actual flesh-eating viruses that we pick up along the way because the pudding was contaminated, and we're passing them on. It's easy. Uh, They're transmissible in blood, mucus, and saliva. Awareness, awareness, a little attention is apparently all we have. Oomperu, depperu, dupperu, and thanks for listening.